a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you're a long-time wrong thinker or just uh, kind of new, maybe checking it out for the first time, hopefully I don't scare you off within the first couple of segments, but I want you to know, this show is about the ongoing battle for your mind. And I'm happy to be a part of that battle, but not in the way that some people might think. I don't want possession of your mind. I don't want to tell you what to think, and I don't want to own you or otherwise exert uh, control or influence over you. What I'm trying to do here is encourage you to take a little deeper look at the issues and the the different uh, challenges that we're facing right now and think about them at a level that goes beyond sensationalism, that goes beyond shouted bumper sticker slogans. In other words, uh, how how we tend to communicate right now about uh, some of the bigger problems facing us has, has really been, uh, it's been watered down. This is about to getting to the principles that are at stake and most importantly, knowing who you are, knowing what you stand for. So my goal is to shovel the best information I can in your direction each day. What you do with that information is entirely up to you. But I thank you so much for giving me a chance. A lot of voices out there, and and there are a lot of great voices trying to stand up for the right thing. I'm just one of many. But if you are looking for truth and if you're looking for light, I hope you like what you find here. And I would encourage you to check out my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I'll give you some great reading material each and every day that I do the show, as well as uh, some, some annotations and, you know, just a little, uh, little background on some of these different articles. But it, the purpose is to encourage independent thought. And it's brought to you by great sponsors like Monticello College, lifesavingfood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So I'm going to start off with just a little bit of a travel log. I'm sorry. Here, let me set up the slide projector so we can uh, can start the slideshow for you. I uh, was traveling just a few days ago to uh, to meet my biological dad face-to-face for the first time. I was adopted when I was four days old, and this is something that my parents never hid from me. It wasn't sprung on me, you know, as a teenager or as an adult. By the way, you were adopted. I, I knew it. I understood it from, well, as far back as I can remember. And I went through most of my life with actually very little curiosity about who had given me up for adoption. Now, strangely, as I got older, I don't know if this is common when when we start getting up during the years, but you start to wonder and maybe contemplate a little bit about the connection to the people who came before you. Now, look, my mom and dad are my mom and dad. They always will be. But it just, it, it raised some interesting questions. And with the ad, you know, the advances in uh, DNA, um, un- in DNA understanding and technology to, to test DNA, well, some tools were available that, uh, that weren't, you know, even just a, just a generation ago. So my son gave me a 23andMe test kit. I filled it out. I, I filled it out. I spit into a tube and sent it into him. And <clears throat> when, the, when the results came back, I logged into my 23andMe account, and the first thing it asked is, well, do you want to see who your blood relatives are? And I clicked on, uh, yes, I do. And about two seconds later, was looking at a picture of my biological dad. And there was no doubt 
yep, <laughs> I look I look so much like this guy. And uh, that started kind of an interesting journey. Now, this has been almost a year and a half ago. And in that time, I was able to connect with my biological father, now just through email initially. And then um, over that time, he and I have actually, we Skype on, on a weekly basis. We talk, you know, fairly regularly. He gave me information that led me to my biological mother. They, they had never married, but I had the chance to meet with her, had a chance to deliver a message that it turns out I really, I really had something I wanted to say to her, which was, thank you. And if you have ever doubted, you know, or ever questioned, did I do the right thing in giving this child up for adoption? I wanted her to know you did. And most importantly, I wanted her to know I didn't squander the gift that you gave me. I was born before Roe v. Wade, but I understand, you know, that's, you know, there was a time when unwanted pregnancies were handled, you know, through adoption, when abortion was not such a, uh, an easy option for people. It wasn't, they, they still focused on the, people still focused on the innocent life that was being taken as opposed to, you know, women's reproductive rights, you know, as the, the predominant consideration. So I had that opportunity and I delivered that message to, uh, to my birth mother. She's a wonderful, sweet individual and it was, uh, it, it was a very uplifting experience. It was, it was actually one of the highlights of 2020, which in, in many respects was kind of a sucky year. But for me, it, it will stand out as one of the greatest years of my life simply because I made that connection with the two people who brought me into being. So with that said, I had yet to meet with uh, my biological dad. We had plans to do so last year about this time, but uh, the pandemic, as you may have heard, has interfered with a few people's plans, and it certainly did for us. Well, I had that opportunity over the past weekend, and uh, I just want to say it was a terrific experience. It was, uh, I, you know, I was surprised as my plane landed in Albuquerque, as the plane touched down, um, this this wave of uh, of emotion just kind of washed over me and, and I could feel, uh, <clears throat> I could feel a little bit of a lump in my throat and my, you know, my eyes were starting to tear up and I'm like, where in the heck is that coming from? I haven't even met the guy yet, but, uh, I got it under control. And so I'm walking through the airport. I'm still kind of feeling that little surge of emotion. I walked out of the security, the security area. And uh, there he was walked over, gave him a hug. And, you know, it just, from that point on, it just was, just felt natural. Just, uh, a very positive experience. Now, my biological dad has uh, has been a bachelor for for most all his life. I mean, and he's he's you know eighty now, and uh, it, it was just it was so neat to to see the life that he has lived. It's very different from mine. His uh, his leanings, I'm sure, are very different. He uh, was very uh, very erudite, an academic. Um, his his doctorate is in Victorian literature. He's been a, you know, a, a university-level librarian, uh, very well-read, well-traveled individual. So we have some very different backgrounds, right? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I am, I am none of those things, but uh, uh, it turns out he has a magnificent voice, better than mine, which I, I was, I was actually kind of, kind of pleased to, to hear him speak. He was smart enough never to, you know, get into broadcast or any other voice-related thing, but he's, uh, uh, quite an quite an accomplished writer, and uh, anyway, it was one of those uh, just brief couple of days getting to spend some time getting to know someone. And you know, if you if you wonder, well, is it a little bit awkward? You know, to when you don't have that much in common, um, it's a little bit awkward just from the standpoint of we've had very very different lives. But man, 
genetics is is fascinating. And as I watched him, as uh, you know, he'd be preparing lunch or whatever. We we were sitting there talking, and I'm I was recognizing little quirks that I'm like, I do that. Hey, that's you know, I I do that very same thing. You know, I, there 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 is something to it. I mean, we're just barely beginning to unlock some of the the different uh, secrets of genetics, but it's fascinating to see it in play. And 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 I have to kind of brag on this a little bit. I look, I'm I'm not a huge fanboy for for Breaking Bad, but I did watch the entire series back when it first came out. Thought it was actually one of the better produced TV shows. Better Call Saul was another great spin-off from Breaking Bad. And the the first thing that uh, my my bio dad and I did when we got back to his place was we took his dogs, he has a couple Scottish terriers and we went for a walk around his neighborhood. And we had gone maybe a block and we turned the corner and I went, whoa, I'm looking at Jesse Pinkman's house that he buys in, in uh, Breaking Bad. And it's, you know, it's a really nice home. It's, 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 a, it's a pretty neat neighborhood. And uh, I thought, okay, that's cool. I'm geeking out over that a little bit. Had to take a picture of it to send to my kids who my adult kids are all Breaking Bad fans. We walk around the corner, literally around the corner again. And there's Chuck McGill's house. That, uh, that would be the brother of Better Call Saul, you know, Saul Goodman. Um, there's his house. And uh, my bio dad's telling me, yeah, yeah, they were filming the series here. And anyway, I just, I thought it was really cool and uh, got very acquainted with the history, the culture, some of the foods and, and uh, just uh, some of the sites of Albuquerque and Santa Fe. And it was, it was a hugely positive experience. Now, unfortunately, that means I've also had a little catching up to do. I had, I had a couple of people reach out two to be exact. who said, Hey, where have you been? So thank you for noticing that I was uh, that I was on a brief hiatus and it's it's really good to be back. And we've got some really uh, powerful stuff to talk about today. Among the things we're going to talk about is uh, the the ring of impunity. I saw a commentary on this the other day. Someone had just said something about, you know, it's it's bad enough when our leaders make mistakes, when they do something wrong, and we have seen plenty of this over the course of the pandemic and some of the decisions and policies that were implemented. But you notice how there's never really any accountability for those who actually do wrong? When someone of the political class screws up, they get away with it. And you know what they revel in more than anything is the impunity of knowing nothing is going to happen to me. And despite your protests, you're still likely going to obey Again, it's a great piece from Dan Sanchez. We'll talk about it coming up. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our sponsors include lifesavingfood.com. You have heard me talk about food story. Actually, anybody who's listened to me over the years knows this is kind of a kind of a big deal to me. Not because I believe the apocalypse is upon us, but because it just feels good to know that you have options when unexpected things come about. And so lifesavingfood.com is one of those places where you can get your food storage program going if you haven't started one. They have great uh, starter packages as well as great complete packages. And uh, Kendall Whiting, who is the owner of lifesavingfood.com, has asked me to, to share with you that uh, the supply chain issues that we have been seeing, the, the growing breakdown in the supply chain, 
is extending to food storage suppliers as well. Now, the bottom line is inventory is still available, but uh, there are delays of up to a month on some of the orders. So I don't want to discourage you from if, if it's something you feel like, you know what, I really need to act on this. You can do so. There, there is still inventory available. But understand that that window of opportunity has been slowly closing for some time. And now that these supply chain issues are starting to kick in, um, you're going to see that window closing a little bit more quickly. Check them out. Look at the BrianHydeShow.com. Uh, you get a 20% discount if you use Hyde, H-Y-D-E, at checkout for your coupon code. Kind of a nice nod to uh, my listeners. And it's a really great deal besides. Let's talk about political power. I don't remember exactly when my eyes were opened to the reality that government solutions have the tendency to create even more problems than they solve. But it seems pretty self-evident today. Thomas L. Knapp has a great political piece. He writes for the William Lloyd Garrison Center for Libertarian Advocacy Journalism. His article is, Political Power is the Problem, Not the Solution. And he puts this so well. He says, President Joe Biden wants the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to mandate COVID-19 vaccinations for all workers at companies with more than 100 employees. Local governments from sea to shining sea, including those of New York City and San Francisco, have conscripted business owners as vaccination passport inspectors, forbidding them to serve customers whose papers aren't in order. Now, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Texas Governor Greg Abbott on the other hand, are attempting to mandate that businesses may not condition employment or patronage on being vaccinated. Now, Thomas Knapp points out here, the two types of mandates may strike you as very different. But he says, in reality, there's no difference at all. The politicians involved are authoritarians. Their COVID-19 power games are about power, not about COVID-19. I'm going to step back here for a moment and just say, I know the knee-jerk reaction would be, but hey, I don't like those mandates, you know, especially the ones telling me I can't work unless I get a vaccine. But it, can you see the point that, that Thomas Knapp is making here? If you're, st- if you're using government to solve government problems, you're still encouraging the cause of the problem to be this, you know, a, a key part of what's going on. And the solution, I'm putting that in air quotes, is likely going to bring problems with it, even if it's well-intended, even if it's something you may agree with, you know, on, on as far as uh, the result that it's getting, it may be an improper use of government. He says, authoritarian politicians and bureaucrats have spent the last year and a half using the pandemic as an excuse to seize more control over our lives than they've ever enjoyed before. And now they're loath to give up that power casting about for any excuse to hold on to it or to expand it even further. He says the corollary of never let a crisis go to waste is never let a crisis end if there's a way to keep it going. Meanwhile, an economy they cratered with their public health measures, none of which have worked as advertised, teeters on the edge. You've seen the empty shelves at your local stores. You've seen the yellow out-of-gas bags at your local gas stations. You've seen the limited hours or drive through only signs at your local fast food restaurants. Well, he says the authoritarian politicians and bureaucrats can't fix these problems. They caused the problems. And anything they do other than sitting down, shutting up, and staying out of the way will make those problems worse, not better. 
And he says, worse, not better, is almost certainly where we're going. Things are shaping up for a crash that may well make the Great Depression look like a pleasure cruise. And when that crash comes, most Americans will probably willingly cede even more power and more authority to those whose power and authority brought the crash about. But they're going to clamor for it. Why? Well, because uh, they need to fix it. Thomas Snap says, because as we all know, the way to get your car repaired is to shove a wad of money at the kid who stole it, took it out for a joyride, and then wrapped it around a telephone pole. That's blunt, but I agree with him. He says, life won't get better until we get one fact through our heads. Political government is our enemy, not our friend. Happen to agree there. And I think that uh, this, this is something that has to be accepted at some level before you can truly be a free individual. Now, some people don't want to be, and I get that. Freedom's scary. It has, uh, there's risk, and there are chances that somebody might do something that you don't agree with. I think the rule of thumb needs to be, though, anything peaceful, anything that does not infringe on another person's rights or damage them or their property should be on the table. People should be free to make that choice. But, of course, that's not the direction we've been going for quite some time. In fact, I want to shift here into a a little discussion about uh, the public schools and something that we can learn by watching the uh, gubernatorial race taking place right now in Virginia. Governor uh, or candidate Terry McAuliffe made a statement about parents and schools that may be seen by some as just kind of a political gaffe, but essentially he said parents really shouldn't have any say over what their kids are learning in school. And as, as a parent whose wife teaches in the public schools, you know, I understand there can be some very mixed feelings about this. But if you are a parent or even a grandparent, you know that's there's a very clear line in the sand here. Should parents have any say about what their kids learn in school? Jack Elbaum, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, has some very relevant thoughts on this matter. And he says, on November 2nd, Virginians will head to the polls to vote for their new governor. In the race between Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin, an unexpected issue, namely schools and education, has taken center stage. And he says, I say unexpected because... Even though education didn't make it onto the Pew Research's list of the 12 most important issues to voters ahead of the 2020 election, recent polling shows that in this race, it's become a top three priority. And it's not hard to see why. In the final debate before the election, while discussing parents who've objected to sexually explicit material in Fairfax County schools, McAuliffe made the shocking statement, I don't think parents should be teaching schools what they should teach. Now, while McAuliffe's statement has been seen by some as just another political gaffe with no deeper meaning, in this case, Jack Elbaum says, it seems far more likely that it was, in fact, a rare moment of honesty. Sometimes politicians screw up and they tell the truth. He says, over the past year, it's become clear that McAuliffe's statement represents a widely held attitude towards parents' role in their children's education. Further, many now believe the role of government in education is not merely to teach children, but to shape them. One of the ways that this is done is by implementing what's known as action civics. 
And this kind of civics not merely is not merely about learning the functions of government or basic history and the ideas our country was founded on. He says, action civics is characterized by a focus on, well, action, as in activism. The USC School of Education says that action civics aims to meet student interest in activism. So in practice, that means getting those kids out there to campaign for left-wing causes ranging from gun control to the new green, to the green New Deal. Yeah, you wonder why Greta Thunberg was, uh, was such a poster child for the Green New Deal? Activism, getting the kids involved. We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Once again, I encourage you, please check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll find lots of great reading material. Ways that you can further educate yourself as to what's going on, as opposed to just waiting for someone to explain it all to you like you were a child. Right now we're talking about uh, should parents have any say what their kids learn in school? This is a question that is kind of front and center right now in the Virginia gubernatorial race, which uh, will be decided November 2nd. And it's it should be very clear to anybody who's paying attention that schools have become kind of a platform for various forms of activism. Critical race theory is one of those things that's being pushed. You know, very explicit sex education. Um, there's there's just a host of uh, curiously left-wing kind of topics that uh, that have found their way into the public schools. But the crazy thing is, Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate for governor in, in Virginia, slipped up and told the truth when he said... I don't think parents should have a say in what schools teach. Now, the truth, I mean, when I say he told the truth, that's what he really believes. <clears throat> he, he, he wasn't able to couch it in the language of, uh, well, you know, obfuscation and word salad and blah, 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 blah. You know, whatever you think, that's what I think. He was uh, remarkably honest about the idea that parents will decide who the, who the heck are you to decide what these kids should be learning. And so you see students uh, being engaged in activism. And Illinois, the article here points out, has actually taken this one step further. The Joint Committee on Administrative Rules, or JCAR, of the Illinois General Assembly, officially enacted culturally responsive teaching and leading standards earlier this year. Now, those standards mandate that teachers instruct through an equity lens while leveraging asset thinking toward traditionally marginalized populations. Remember what I was saying about word salad? Okay, just... And to integrate the wide spectrum and fluidity of identities in the curriculum. They want to play with your kids' minds. This isn't about education. This is about indoctrination and inculcating the proper attitudes that uh, these young people are going to need as they move forward into this brave new world. Now, the author here, um, Jack Elbaum, says that uh, most people would very hard, be very hard-pressed to explain what any of that, uh, that word salad actually means in practice. But he says the ways in which identity-focused curricula has already been implemented in schools across the country 
may give us a clue. Chris Rufo, who's a contributing editor at City Journal, has done penetrating reporting on this. And among the things he found, an elementary school in Cupertino, California, forced third graders to deconstruct their racial and sexual identities, then rank themselves according to their power and privilege. Third graders. In a presentation, Seattle Public Schools tells teachers that the education system is guilty of spirit murder against black children and that white teachers must bankrupt their privilege in acknowledgement of their thieved inheritance. Yeah, that's not very loaded, is it? How about this? In an elementary school in Philadelphia where 87% of kids will not achieve basic literacy by graduation, fifth graders were forced to celebrate black communism and simulate a black power rally to free Angela Davis from prison. Now, Jack says these are some of the most radical examples, but they're by no means isolated. The ideology underlying so much of this has become even more widespread over the last year or so. In fact, the two largest teachers unions in the country both have come out in strong support of this kind of race essentialist education, signaling that they want to bring it into as many classrooms as possible. Now, this approach of infusing education with far left politics is dangerous not only because it leads to state-sponsored indoctrination of our nation's youth, but because it also violates the most basic rights of parents. After all, when did they approve of this curriculum for their kids? See, that's what you get when you put Terry McAuliffe's words into action. Jack Elbaum says to tell parents they do not have a right to say what their children learn is to tell them that their children are nothing more than government property. It's to tell them their children are mere widgets that are programmed to be in the exact right way, in other words, the way state bureaucrats decide is best. But far from promoting diversity and inclusion, this line of thinking destroys it. It squashes the spirit of free inquiry, discovery, and questioning that leads to a productive society. And it creates a world in which everyone thinks the same. That's a good point, by the way. You know, you want to think about a free society? Uniformity is not the hallmark of a free society. It's the hallmark, always, of a totalitarian society. Now, Jack goes on to point out that school choice is winning in America. He says, many parents recognize just how important the education of their children is, and they're witnessing its integrity being systematically attacked in real time. So he says it should be no surprise that more and more Americans are not only supporting school choice, but also choosing alternatives to the traditional public school system for their children. The recent poll conducted by the American Federation for Children found that support for school choice has reached 74%. That's an all-time high. And this included 70% of Democrats, 69% of independents, and similarly high numbers across all races and ethnicities. Yet while rhetorical support is important, parents have also acted on their displeasure by turning to alternatives for their kids. So the U.S. Census Bureau, for instance, has found that homeschooling has increased by 11% over the past year. And the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools recently reported their enrollment has gone up by 7% during the pandemic. In short, school choice is winning, even with the teachers' unions and politicians who support them doing everything in their power to prevent educational freedom. Parents are increasingly supporting it because they know what's best for their children, better than any state bureaucrat could. 
And it's a curious thing that it reveals about us in terms of how we see education. Because for many people, you look at monopolies and you're like, that's not a good thing. Why that limits people's ability to, to choose what's best for them. But when it comes to education, a lot of folks think, well, a monopoly is a good thing. It's the only thing. Maybe that's because it's the system in which they were educated. Jack Elbaum says, as far as uh, monopolies go, they hurt consumers. And most Americans, both on the left and right, will agree about that. When choice and competition are limited or, for that matter, non-existent in the private sector, well, he says, we understand that companies get away with inefficient practices. Consumers get stuck with bad products and high prices. On the other hand, in a competitive market, the consumer has the power in the relationship between himself and the firm. Here's a quote from Ludwig von Mises' book, Bureaucracy. Von Mises says, quote, The real bosses under capitalism are the consumers. They, by their buying and by their abstention from buying, decide who should own the capital and run the plants. They determine who should be, or rather, what should be produced and in what quantity and quality. Their attitudes result in either profit or loss for the enterpriser. They make poor men rich and rich men poor. They are no easy bosses. They're full of whims and fancies, changeable and unpredictable. They do not care a whit for past merit. As soon as something is offered to them that they like better or is cheaper, they desert their old purveyors. End quote. Now, Jack says, look, that's only possible because the consumer can choose between numerous firms. If firm A jacks up its prices or has poor customer service, for example, the consumer's at liberty to take his business to firm B. However, when there's a monopoly, well, the consumer has no such ability. He's forced to do business with firm A no matter what, and in consequence, the monopoly firm has little incentive to do anything for the benefit of the consumer. After all, where's he going to go, right? But for some reason, when it comes to education, this idea, which is nearly universally agreed upon in the private sector, is simply forgotten. And that's a tragedy because of just how crucial education is. If we understand the harms of monopoly when it comes to industry X, Y, and Z, then it's hard to see why, we should, why anyone would be fighting to maintain an education system that forces students into a given school based solely on their zip code, irrespective of their needs, their desires, or their values. Now, of course, there are indeed private schools that parents can send their kids to if they're dissatisfied with the traditional public school. However, parents are still forced to fund the public school through their taxes, even if they send their kids to private school. Therefore, in practice, private schools are only accessible for students from high-income families. So what the school choice movement aims to do is to afford all families regardless of income, similar opportunities, by allowing those parents to decide where the money for their child's, child's education goes. Jack Elbaum says if we did that, then the educational entrepreneurs could develop new and creative ways to help students, and then parents could then choose the school that best aligns with their values and the presence of true competition would keep prices down and quality up. Now that should be a no-brainer, Right. But it's a very hard sell, even to parents who would, you know, describe themselves as being right there on the right-hand side of the political spectrum. I think that all comes back to the question, whose kids are they? How you answer that question is going to determine uh, how you're going to look at the solutions.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Hey, if you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West right now, first of all, congratulations. I'm assuming you escaped from someplace horrible. Okay, maybe that was a bad thing to say. Nonetheless, I think you'll find the quality of life, the amount of freedom, the amount of uh, commerce and opportunity here is really something. Unfortunately, it means there's also a lot of competition because so many people are moving to the Intermountain West. When it comes to purchasing a home, Yeah, they don't stay on the market for very long. And uh, I want to tell you that the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, is your best bet. If you are going to be purchasing a home in Utah or whether maybe you're refinancing your existing home loan, if you need a VA loan or a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has decades of experience. And Heather has the stability and the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. So if you're looking to make it happen fast, which is a necessity in this red-hot real estate market, you need to contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can call her at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, swing by 619 South Bluff Street. That's where you'll find them. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You know, history shows that human nature really hasn't changed. That's, I think, you know, I'm I'm not a great student of history, but as I've studied history, that's been the one thing that has really stuck in my mind. You read what uh, Plato and others were talking about 3,000 years ago, and the same concerns have existed through every generation of human beings. The same desires, the same weaknesses, etc. And you give a person enough power... Human nature is that they are going to abuse it at some point. Well, Dan Sanchez has a terrific essay about the ring of impunity and about how so many of the people in power today don't just crave power over others. They thrill at the prospect of getting away with abusing that power. And Dan starts with reminding us about the Lord of the Rings, the plot centering around the one ring, which is supreme among all the rings of power crafted by the evil Sauron. Now, some fans have been underwhelmed by the power it grants its wearer, mere invisibility. That would seem pale in comparison to, say, the superhero Green Lantern's power ring, which can create just about anything its wearer imagines. What's the big deal about invisibility? Why would a ring be so corrupting to its wearers, especially like it was to Gollum? Well, J.R.R. Tolkien made the One Ring special far beyond this one power. But invisibility is actually the one fantasy superpower that best represents state power. And Dan Sanchez says, after all, what is power? It's simply the capacity, is it simply the capacity to exert unjust force? The ability to impress one's will upon the flesh or belongings of another? And his answer is, surely not. Because most anybody can wield unjust force. Anybody could walk out in the street right now and exert their will on someone someone who's weaker. Like pushing over an old lady, stealing candy from a baby, right? And the toughest or most heavily armed guy in town can strong arm just about any other single person. But perpetrating isolated incidents of aggression, that's not power. 
Dan says the reign of the rogue rampager is extremely short-lived. It only lasts until the community recognizes him as the menace to society that he is and then neutralizes him. So he says, no, power isn't simply about the exertion of unjust force. It's about what happens next after the exertion. Does the perp generally get away with it or not? Systematically getting away with it or impunity, that's where power truly lies. And that is what makes agents of the state different from any other bully. Because state agents can aggress with reliable impunity because a critical mass of the state's victims consider the aggression of state agents to be exceptional and legitimate. That's power. And that's why invisibility is such an apt analog for state power. Because the public's moral vision has a complete blind spot when it comes to the state. It detects acts of theft and enslavement and murder whenever they're being perpetrated by anybody else, but it's blind to the criminality involved when the same, exact same acts are being committed by agents of the state. It's blind to state theft, instead seeing taxation, fees, or citations. It's blind to state enslavement, instead seeing mandates, prohibitions, and regulations. And it's blind to state murder, instead seeing war in pursuit of the national interest. Now, Dan Sanchez goes on to remind us about Lord Acton, who wrote, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. And again, the one ring's power of invisibility, which can be taken to to, uh, represent impunity, which is the essence of power. So it makes perfect sense that the one ring would be so corrupting to Gollum, transforming him from a gentle, hobbit-like fellow into a mad, mendacious, and murderous fiend. But careful contemplation of the link between impunity and corruption goes back as far as the 4th century B.C. to a thought experiment designed by Plato, which also involved a ring of invisibility. In Plato's Republic... The legend of the Ring of Gyges is used to argue that a man would not likely adhere to justice if he were privileged with complete impunity. Gyges was a shepherd who, upon finding an invisibility-granting ring, utilized it to slay his king and take the throne for himself. Plato's character Glaucon concludes, Suppose now that there were two such magic rings, and the just put on one of them and the unjust the other. No man can be imagined to be of such an iron nature that he would stand fast in justice. No man would keep his hands off what was not his own when he could safely take what he liked out of the market, or go into houses and lie with anyone at his pleasure, or kill or release from prison whom he would, and in all, res- and in all respects be like a god among men. End quote. Well, Dan Sanchez says, such also is the corrupting nature of state impunity. It presents the state agent with abounding opportunities to safely take what he likes out of the market through myriad methods of extraction, taxation, fiat money and inflation, fees, fines, penalties, civil forfeiture, etc., and disbursement, subsidies, bailouts, welfare benefits, government paychecks and contracts, etc. Sanchez says, faced with such, temp- such temptations, no man would keep his hands off what was not his own which is why politicians and bureaucrats are so avaricious and always eager to, at least in their pet fiefdoms, fatten their own wallets and resumes by way of engorging the state at the public expense. 
Like the Ring of Gyges, state impunity also pre- presents state agents with agents rather with opportunities to safely go into houses and lie with anyone at his pleasure or kill or release from prison whom he would. It invites them to indulge what St. Augustine called their libido dominandi, or lust to dominate, and to brutally mow down anyone standing in the way of their desires. This is why politicians and bureaucrats are so cavalier about the lives and liberties of little people, and are so liable to consider it worth it, as Madeleine Albright put it, to kill, cripple, cage, or torture hundreds of thousands of innocents, including children, in pursuit of their aims. A man can do a slapstick routine about looking for the fictitious, uh, who can do a a routine about looking for fictitious weapons of mass destruction he used to lie his country into a major war, or who can jokingly threaten to use drones to kill teenage suitors of his daughters after actually killing teenage boys with drones, is a man whose soul has become totally warped by the impunity of office. And this sickness of soul can be seen in the brutality and mendacity of U.S. client states, privileged with impunity in the form of blank check, unconditional support from the global hegemon. Witness the uninhibited massacres and abashed, unabashed rather serial deceit, incredible even in the context of state conduct, that have been the, tro- the stock in trade of Israel concerning Gaza and Ukraine concerning the Donbass. Now, this is a fantastic article. There's much more to this. Dan Sanchez talks about the golems in blue and their magic jewelry. That would be the police. He tells us not to put your faith in ring bearers. The conclusion he comes to is this. State power is impunity. Impunity corrupts and absolute impunity corrupts absolutely. It attracts the not only already corrupt but it debases every soul that it touches. And so Dan Sanchez says, state impunity is a hell of a drug and one deserving of absolute prohibition. And he says, libertarians especially should stay off the stuff. I've got this linked in the show notes at the brianhideshow.com. It is a, it's a, it's a fairly lengthy article, but I think it's well worth your time. Dan Sanchez is uh, one of my favorite writers. And uh, you just dive into that article and you'll quickly see why. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks again for considering this voice among many voices, trying to make sense of the world around us and what you and I can do. It takes courage to face some of these truths and to do it unflinchingly. But I appreciate you giving us a chance. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I've got great sponsors who make this program possible. They allow me to focus on spending my time 
gathering and then disseminating the best information I can find to shed light on what is going on in the world around us, as well as to uh, encourage you, as well as myself, to to make the stand that we were born to make. Those sponsors include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. There's a special link at the end of each show notes or a special section where I have links to each one of these sponsors. Got some great new sponsors that are going to be joining us, too, uh, very shortly. I'm very excited about the opportunity to tell you about them. But uh, please go to my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. If you uh, subscribe, you can become a member. You can become a supporter of this program where you can do, a, you know, if you can donate $5, $10 a month, it's greatly appreciated. And that money is is put specifically, it's like sacred funds that are put specifically to the, to the purpose of discussing the things that actually matter in a way that doesn't bring more anger or more fear to the situation. My goal is to bring people together on the issues that matter where we can speak with one voice and get things done. So let's dive in. Um, I haven't had a chance to do a whole lot of uh, movie watching here of late. Life's been kind of busy, and I'm I'm glad for that. But it's interesting to me, one of the more curious trends of the current woke movement is the pressure to only cast actors who've authentically lived the experience of the characters they play. Now, I've been a huge fan of The uh, the Simpsons over the years. And one of the things I loved was the characters that they created were so funny and so believable in the sense that, uh, they they yes, they were lampooning everybody, but I was very sad to see that a number of the, the voice actors for The Simpsons were, were apologizing, walking it back. Um, Hank Azaria, who brilliantly portrayed uh, uh, Apu Nahasapima Petalon, uh, thank you. Come again. You know, the guy from, uh, from Quickie Mart on the Simpsons, you know, and he very, uh, Hank, Hank Azaria very apologetically. Well, I'm not Indian and I think it's wrong. You know, I, I, he, he just, I, I won't voice that character anymore. They retired a poo. You know, Harry Shearer was the voice of Dr. Hibbard kind of, a you know, Bill Cosby, you know, Dr. Huxtable spinoff only not, not pervy. And uh, you know, he won't voice a character because, you know, Harry's not black. So isn't it interesting? You know, the culture war over politically correct casting actually seems to be limiting artistic freedom. And you have to wonder, where's it going to go from here? You know, can, can uh, you know, I'm portraying a dead character. Well, you've never been dead. Oh, you're right. I can't do this. <laughs> How far are we willing to take this? Here's an article from Marin Tom. This is from spikedonline.com. And the, the article's called, Can Any Actor Play James Bond? And Marin says, Brian Cox, star of Su- Succession, has become the latest actor to express concerns over today's casting process. He claims that so-called authentic casting, in which roles go to actors with the same lived experiences as the characters, ignores the craft of acting. Scarlett Johansson made a similar argument to Cox back in 2019. She said that as an actor, I should be allowed to play any person or any tree or any animal because that's my job and the requirements of my job. Now, that sounds like a rational criticism of the woke politics of casting today. Acting, by definition, is pretending to be something that you're not. However, it's important to stress that acting and casting are two very different things. Acting is an individual's professional ability to make physical and emotional choices that create a character. Casting is the deliberate and creative choice of certain actors to play certain roles in order to convey particular meanings. 
Now, there's no denying that to a degree the two skills complement one another. An actor's acting helps to create meaning, but there are also meanings that are outside of the skill of any actor to create. For instance, the role of Sherlock Holmes has a different meaning depending on who plays him. Audiences understand the character very differently when he's played by Henry Cavill compared with Will Ferrell. Both are great actors, they make interesting, engaging choices, but they convey different meanings to an audience from the first second they appear on film. Is, is it, it is this distinction, rather, between an actor's skill and an actor's symbolic meaning that's being obscured by today's culture war. And this works in two ways. Firstly, both sides assume that casting works in the service of realism. So the woke side insists that no one can play a disabled person more authentically and therefore more realistically than an actual disabled person. And likewise, the anti-woke side insists that no one can play Winston Churchill or James Bond other than a white man, and so on. So both sides agree, anything other than culturally correct casting is inauthentic and will make a film unbearable to watch. Secondly, both sides see audiences as being culturally determined, that is, shaped and formed by the cultural products to which they're exposed. The culture war over casting is a fight over what kind of correct role models the audience's supposedly impressionable minds should be exposed to. A trans actor playing a trans role or a white male actor playing James Bond. Both sides therefore appeal to a very narrow form of artistic realism in which actors physically represent real people. This is why arguments over casting and representation fixate on realistic genres that rely on verisimilitude to tell stories quickly and efficiently, namely Hollywood films and TV dramas. Casting choices in these genres are dictated by what the audience will accept as realistic. And the endless arguments over who should be the next James Bond run aground on this problem. The Bond movie is a realist genre. Bond is a character with a small, irreducible, and unpleasant set of fixed qualities that have to be represented realistically. Unfortunately, these qualities, from a belief in the superiority of the British Empire to a patriarchal condescension to women, are now either irrelevant or taboo. Now, the Daniel Craig era of James Bond solved this problem as well as it could by minimizing these qualities. Craig's Bond was a wounded beast, a bull in a china shop. Craig literally embodied and put on screen the absurd physical characteristics of a bull, with a massive chest, squat legs, bristly hair, and a thousand-yard stare. It's an interesting thought experiment to imagine who could play James Bond if a Bond movie were not tied to the conventions of realism. So if a director like David Lynch or Andrea Arnold were to make a non-realist film with Bond as a character, many more artistic options would be available, valid, and interesting. See, in this context, Bond could very easily be played by a black woman, and no one would bat an eyelid, and it would probably make for a more entertain, entertaining film. But of course, any production team should be free to cast anyone it wants for a particular role. The woke casting diktats of representation should be rejected because they're an attack on artistic freedom. The big loser in the culture wars, says Marin Tom, is culture itself. Those demanding realism and authenticity close down artistic possibilities. Ultimately, they restrict our capacity to express and communicate to one another the richness and contradictions of the world. Yeah, I, you know, I don't mind. I mean, I've, I've, I've watched only a couple of David Lynch films, 
I'm still in therapy from Eraserhead, but that's another story. But what makes this so distasteful with with all of the, the politically and culturally correct casting requirements is that it feels like you, you have to be fitted. Yeah, having just been through the airport, this is kind of you know fresh in my mind. You know, in order for this to be carry-on, your baggage has to fit within this frame. And I think there's kind of a similar mental framework that uh, you're, you know, for this character to, to be acceptable to Hollywood or whoever's producing the films, they, they have to fit this particular ideological mold which means the audience has to experience this at, at this particular, from this ideological vantage point. I guess what I'm saying in a roundabout way here is films were a lot more fun before they became politically motivated delivery vehicles. I mean, the woke versions of films, the remakes of films, um, not to pick on anybody, but the all-female Ghostbusters that came out here a few years ago, they're garbage. And it's not just because, oh, you're just saying that because you're misogynist and you don't like women. No, I mean, they were rewritten and, and, and recast and, and, and redeveloped in, in a way that, that just sucked the fun out of the movie because there was a larger ideological point that was being beat down into our skulls. Yeah, I don't, I don't like being force-fed. Maybe some people are into that. There's, I'm sure there's some fetish out there for, yes, yes, force feed me. Tell me what to think. Govern me harder, daddy. That's not for me. So it's a shame because there's some really great talent. I love good entertainment. I even love some not so good entertainment. The irreverent stuff. Watch Talladega Nights for the first time. Holy cow. I haven't laughed that hard in quite a while. And a lot of that was inappropriate humor, but it was still funny. Don't beat us up with the ideological stuff, though, Hollywood. Let us make our own minds up about what's entertaining. That's all we're asking. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Thank you for being a sponsor. Also, thanks to LifesavingFood.com. I've been telling you about uh, some of the great uh, discounts that they've been offering my listeners. When you enter the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout, they will uh, knock 20% off your purchase price. Still a good time to be getting food storage uh, products, 25-year shelf life, lots of variety, However, I do need to tell you that uh, the supply chain shortages and breakdowns are causing some difficulty in getting those orders filled. And it's not like, oh, they can't get the stuff. It's just, it's taking longer. You know, some of these orders could take up to a month to fill. I would encourage you, don't let that dissuade you from doing what you can to continue building upon your self-reliance. Go to their website. There's a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. But check it out. Make the decision of what's best for you, and be sure to use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, to get a nice 20% discount. Let's talk for a moment about the the shipping crisis. And I think the, the first and most important thing that has to be said is, it's not a matter of, oh, if only we had some government regulation or something to get in there and fix it. No, it's not the product of too little government oversight. It's quite the opposite, in fact. 
we have to uh, we have to learn to trim government back. And there's a terrific article from Peter C. Earle. This is from the uh, American Institute for Economic Research, which makes the case that if you want to fix this shipping crisis, you start by repealing the Jones Act. I learned a lot from this one. Peter Earle says at 9 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Friday, October 22nd, the informal commercial flotilla off the coast of California ports reached a new high. 79 container ships were, as of that time, waiting to dock and offload cargo. The total number of vessels offshore, including oil tankers and bulk transports, has now reached 169. Some have been anchored for more than a month. There's no reason to think that number won't continue rising in the coming days and perhaps weeks. Now, the recent game-changing concession, which President Biden allegedly extracted from unions to extend port operating hours to 24-7, the basis upon which most other ports in the industrialized nations work is hollow. In fact, he says, Wednesday's announcement was a concession from port operators, not the unions, and increased hours won't fix the bottlenecks. The added hours will boost cargo movement by less than 10% or an estimated 3,500 containers a week. The real problem is the union's tooth-and-nail opposition to labor-saving equipment. Cranes in automated ports operate at least twice as fast as cranes in outdated U.S. ports. Biden's port envoy, John Pokari, let the truth out when he said last week, it's your grandfather's infrastructure that we're working with. Now, there's a single measure which might be undertaken that would alleviate many of the sources of the bottlenecks in shipping, but like so much else, it's a measure fraught with political uh, political tensions. The Jones Act, more commonly known as Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, restricts foreign-owned ships from loading cargo in one U.S. port and unloading it in another. Now, it does not restrict foreign-owned vessels Uh, vessels from discharging cargo in numerous U.S. ports or loading cargo in multiple U.S. ports. But to pick up and drop off at U.S. ports in a single trip, rather, known as cabotage or intercoastal trade, a ship has to be four times American, under a U.S. flag, U.S. built, U.S. owned, U.S. manned. Kind of makes you wonder what the thinking was behind the Jones Act. Well, uh, Peter C. Earle says the original purpose of the Jones Act was to ensure that U.S. shipbuilding capacity wouldn't be dependent on foreign nations, as well as to keep domestic shipping American, both purportedly so that the, in the event of a war, a fleet, merchant, a fleet of merchant mariners could quickly and with relative ease be raised. But whether national security was the actual or the nominal focus, the effects have included stifling competition the creation of an oligopoly, the consequent effects on shipping prices and available services. And as the number of nations that the U.S. trades with and, uh, and uh, in, increases and trading volumes has in, volume has increased, the impact of the Jones Act has become increasingly stifling. And there are two very prominent examples, both the state of Hawaii and the unincorporated territory of Puerto Rico both suffer extreme costs arising from the protectionist elements therein. And then he explains that the effects propagate outward from there. Rigid shipping prices owing to artificially suppressed competition beget inflexibility in the pricing structure of dock operations, where wages are often additionally subject to collective bargaining. Also, this applies to trucking, rail transport, barges, pipelines, and beyond. 
Thus, to the extent that maritime-related costs of transportation are embedded in the final prices of goods, Peter Earle says the Jones Act plays a pivotal role in keeping them elevated. More employment opportunities, commercial diversity, and a wider range of goods and services from abroad are necessarily hampered by the artificial restraint upon trade that it manifests. How is it that a century-old, obscure piece of legislation could remain on the books despite clear economic benefits to repealing it? Special interests, of course. And two of the major lobbyists in this regard are the American Maritime Partnership, representing shipbuilders, and the Seafarers Union, representing mariners. Federal testimony given in March 2019 made two particularly relevant points. The first is that among the foremost challenges to the U.S. merchant marine and shipbuilding industry are low-cost foreign competitors and that the few remaining large U.S. commercial shipyards rely on the small domestic U.S. market. Now, Peter C. Earle says, It is likely that growing tensions between the U.S. and China and actual encounters between the U.S. and Russia will be cited in support of leaving the Jones Act intact as may suggestions about the negative effect that its unwinding would allegedly have upon trade, immigration, and other issues. But he says, touting some public obligation to a particular group of hard-working Americans is likely as well. However, he says, in fact, the fetters inherent in the Jones Act have already been acknowledged by the government, which has set aside the Jones Act's requirements during emergencies, most recently during the aftermath of Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Irma, in 2017, Hurricane Sandy in 2012, and Hurricane Katrina in 2005. So Peter Earle says, if not eliminating it completely, as should be the case, the Biden administration should immediately suspend the Jones Act, at least until the shipping backlog is remedied, whether that takes weeks or months. That, instead of coddling special interests, wielding ludicrous and arguably long-out-of-date arguments, would be a true game-changer. Kind of an interesting take, wouldn't you say? I wasn't aware of, of, of I, I didn't know much about the Jones Act, heard of it, but couldn't have explained it to you. But I am very aware and uh, becoming more aware than I would like to be of the growing shipping crisis. And it's not just because, I'm going to get my Christmas stuff, man. Who's going to get my Christmas stuff for me? This could have some pretty long-range implications for a lot of the things that you and I take for granted are always going to be on those store shelves. I mean, we learned a really valuable lesson back in March of 2020. It was just a little taste of panic, and people started emptying store shelves. I think we're likely to start see a little to start seeing a little more of that kind of panic as more and more shortages become apparent as as the the growing empty space on those store shelves expands. And I don't mean to be gloomy about this and, you know, this sucks, you know, we're all going to starve. I'm just saying that this is an artificial crisis that is, is taking place in large part because of too much government and too much regulation. Maybe it's time for government to step back out of the way and let us solve this to the best of our ability ourselves. I trust the market to make the right decisions. But I guess that's going to be a hard sell for a lot of people who've been trained to believe, no, 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 the market would only be greedy and would do things that would hurt people. Yeah, unlike the government, which would uh, have policies that contribute to empty store shelves and 
higher prices and less freedom and, you know, a few little things like that. You're right. Better trust the government on this one. They've got our best interests in mind. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Please check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You can take a deep dive into each one of these articles. They also have supported links. And I have resources for wrong thinkers there at my website. If you'd like to become a sponsor, there, click on the uh, How to Advertise With Us link. Lots of opportunities here, but the goal, as always, is to give you the best information that I can that uh, sheds light on the world as it is, not, a, not as the narrative is, is uh, being laid out for us, and to, to help you understand that, yeah, it, there, there's a lot of challenges, but I think it's, it's uh, safe to say we were, we were held for this time. I believe that we were born in this time for a purpose. That gets pretty metaphysical for some people, but I see great opportunity. For, for people to stand up and actually do heroic things, even though there are some very hard things that are being required of us from time to time. I'm grateful to be on, on the side of, of freedom, personal liberty, freedom of conscience, private property. I think these are things that have stood the test of time, and, and they're unfortunately being very uh, strongly opposed from numerous corners these days. In fact, let's, let's talk a little bit about the crossroad that we're standing at at least in regards to what kind of a nation are we going to be as we move forward. I have loved Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation for a long time. He has a very principled, down-to-earth, and non-bombastic take on what's happening. And he has an excellent article that was published on lewrockwell.com about the conflicts of visions that shaped America. It's kind of an interesting take on, on the decision that we face. He says, there have been two conflicting visions in American history that have shaped our nation. As conditions in the United States continue to worsen, it is important that Americans engage in serious soul-searching to determine which vision should be embraced going forward. So let's talk about (laughs) the original vision. The first vision was that that which characterized the American people from the founding of the United States to the early part of the 20th century. Now, there are various labels that we put on this particular vision, a free market system, a capitalist system, a free enterprise system, and a limited government republic. Regardless of which label is used, there is no disputing that this was the most unusual political economic system in history. He says, just think, there once existed a society in which there was no income tax and no IRS. Americans were free to keep everything they earned and to do whatever they wanted with their own money. They could spend, save, hoard, donate, or invest it. There were no farm-mandated charities, or no government-mandated charities, rather, including Social Security, farm subsidies, welfare, education grants, or any other type of government-provided philanthropy. Charity was conducted entirely as a voluntary action. There exists a society where there were no education grants, no foreign aid, no corporate bailouts, no small business administration loans, no government grants, no other types of welfare, no Medicare, no Medicaid, no Centers for Disease Control, no FDA, 
no medical licensure laws, hospitals were privately owned, essentially no government involvement in health care, no immigration controls. People from around the world were free to come to the United States almost with no questions asked. There were no limits on numbers. There were no required credentials or educational background. There were no literacy tests. Even knowing English was not a prerequisite for entry. As long as one didn't have tuberculosis or some other infectious illness and wasn't an imbecile, entry was automatic. Few economic regulations, no minimum wage laws and price controls, no gun control laws. Americans understood that the right to keep and bear arms was the key to a free society. They would never have permitted government officials to enact gun control laws. There were no public schooling systems, no compulsory school attendance laws. Education was private, and it was based on free market principles. There was no Pentagon or military-industrial complex. Americans actually opposed standing armies. That's why there was only a basic, relatively small army throughout the 1800s. No empire of domestic and foreign military bases, no CIA, no state-sponsored assassinations, no coups, no foreign regime change operations, no torture, no NSA, no secret mass surveillance schemes, no FBI. Crime was considered a state and local matter. Americans didn't want what President Truman referred to as a Gestapo-like entity. No wars in European, Asian, or African countries. Now he's talking about American entanglement in them. No foreign aid, no foreign interventions. No wars of aggression. No Federal Reserve System. This is a big one. No fiat, meaning paper money. Gold coins and silver coins were the official money of the American people. No U.S. Departments of Education, Commerce, Labor, Health and Human Services, Housing and Urban Development, Transportation Secretary, I'm sorry, Transportation Energy, rather, and uh, Homeland Security. No U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, no EPA, no Federal Trade Commission, no Occupational Safety and Health Administration, Federal Communications Commission, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, Interstate Commerce Commission, National Labor Relations Board, and many other regulatory commissions. I mean, my goodness, I feel breathless just going through the whole list. Jacob Hornberger says America once had the finest health care system in, the, in history, one based on free market principles. In fact, health care prices were so low and stable that hardly anyone had or needed major medical insurance. Going to the doctor was like going to the grocery store. Moreover, doctors and hospitals treated the poor on a purely voluntary basis. Now, he says, I'm not suggesting that this was a 100% libertarian society. There was slavery. Women didn't have the right to vote. There were tariffs. There was the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1890 and the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. He says, I am suggesting, though, that 19th century Americans proved that it's possible to achieve all those libertarian principles listed above. And the result of this unique way of life was one of the most phenomenal occurrences in history. By the late 1800s and early 1900s, the standard of living of the American people was skyrocketing. No one had ever witnessed anything like this in history. People were going from rags to riches in one, two, or three generations. Thousands of penniless immigrants were flooding into America to partake in the American dream many of whom couldn't even speak English. At the beginning stages of U.S. history, the standard of living was relatively low enough for everyone. Many people struggled just to survive. 
In each generation, though, families would save a portion of their income. Those savings would go into banks. The banks would lend it out to employers who used it to make their businesses more productive. And as productivity increased, so did the firm's revenues and profits. That enabled businesses to pay higher wages to their workers. Employers were were raising wages not because they were motivated by charity, but rather by competition. Because their employees would go to those businesses that were paying the best wages. And sound money also played played a role in this process. People were no longer concerned with the possibility that government would wipe out the value of their savings through the debasement of paper money. That's because the Constitution required the federal government and state governments to only use gold and silver coins as the official money of the nation. Government couldn't print gold like it could paper money. People were willing to invest in 100-year corporate bonds because they were repayable in gold. In a nation in which people were free to accumulate wealth, there was the greatest outburst of charitable activity mankind has ever seen. This was how churches, hospitals, museums, colleges, and universities got built. With the money that multimillionaires were making in a society where people were free to accumulate unlimited amounts of wealth. As the rising standard of living began providing people with the luxury of leisure time, many people used it as an opportunity to participate in philanthropic activity. After Alexis de Tocqueville visited the United States in the 1830s, in his book, Democracy in America, he marveled at the enormous amount of voluntary associations and philanthropic activity in America. Sometimes Jacob Hornberger says, I've thought that if I could choose where and when I wanted to live, my choice would be the United States from around 1880 to 1910. It must have been a phenomenally exciting time in which to live. And he says, yeah, I know, no air conditioning, no computers, no GPS, no cell phones, but new inventions were coming into existence every day. The standard of people was soaring. More important, it was the period of time in which economic liberty reached its apogee. Now, from here, he goes into a discussion on the growth of statism. In fact, we'll come back to this just the other side of the break. Because in the late 1800s, there was a shift among some Americans who began agitating for change. In other words, they were pushing for socialism, empire, and government management and control over economic activity. They saw all that wealth coming into existence, and they wanted government to take it away and give it to the needy and the poor. And they saw women and children working in factories, and they wanted government to put a stop to it. They saw other nations having overseas colonies. They believed that was the way to national greatness. But that desire for change came with a bit of a price. We'll talk about that when we come back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article from Jacob Hornberger about the visions, the conflict of visions that shaped America. And I'm curious, did it surprise you to learn how free Americans were up until about uh, 1913 or thereabouts? Pretty interesting stuff. 
the free free enterprise, free market system provided incredible wealth. People kept their money. There was no direct taxation. Your interaction with the federal government was likely only going to happen when you walked into a post office. That was it. You don't see that much today. And when he talks about where we we shifted, where that turning point came, there was a time when, when the, the growth of statism became almost, uh, you know, just endemic. He talks about how in 1890, the people who were pushing for greater government involvement in life succeeded in getting the Sherman Antitrust Act enacted under the rationale that big successful businesses were a danger to consumers. In 1882, based on racial grounds, they got the first Immigration Control Act enacted. Did you realize that? The Chinese Exclusion Act. In 1898, they embroiled the United States in the Spanish-American War, which became the turning point toward empire and intervention. That's when the United States acquired its torture and prison center at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. In the early 1900s, interventionists induced some states to enact minimum wage laws and maximum hours legislation. In 1913, they succeeded with two major statist achievements. The enactment of the 16th Amendment, that would be the income tax, and the Federal Reserve System, both of which would provide the engine for confiscation of wealth, both directly through income taxation and indirectly through debasement of the currency. They got the United States into World War I and enacted a conscription law to force American men to fight in it. They also enacted laws providing for the criminal prosecution of people who spoke out against the draft or the war. The intervention established the conditions for Hitler's rise to power. After the Federal Reserve caused the 1929 stock market crash and resulting Great Depression, President Franklin Roosevelt used the crisis to complete the transformation of America to a welfare state and a government-managed and government-regulated economy. In the process, he nationalized gold, ordering all Americans to turn in their gold coins to the federal government. Declaring that irredeemable paper money was now the nation's official money, Roosevelt opened the floodgates to future decades of -of out-of-control federal spending and monetary debauchery. Now, of course, the crown jewel of Roosevelt's welfare state was Social Security, a socialist concept imported from German socialists. And it was based on the concept of using the government to take money from Peter in order to give it to Paul. Over time, generation after generation of Americans became psychologically dependent on this political narcotic, convinced that people would die in the streets without it. Early in the 20th century, public schooling started to come into existence, accompanied by compulsory attendance laws. And Americans became accustomed to having their children indoctrinated by the state. Over time, they became convinced that without government schooling, children would not become educated. Public schooling succeeding in attaining a deferential, succeeded in attaining a deferential, obedient, regimented, and passive citizenry. In the 1960s, President Lyndon Johnson brought Medicare and Medicaid into existence, which destroyed the finest health care system in history. These two socialist programs are the root cause of Americans on America's ongoing perpetual health care crisis. They're the reason for soaring health care costs. As with Social Security, many, many Americans are convinced without these two socialist programs, people would be dying in the streets. After World War II, interventionists succeeded in converting the federal government from a limited government republic to a national security state. That conversion brought into existence a vast, 
permanent, voracious, and vicious military intelligence establishment to wage a cold war against America's World War II partner and ally, the Soviet Union. And it would be followed by a giant empire of military bases, not just domestically, but also, also all over the world. The CIA and NSA were called into existence, accompanied by their omnipotent totalitarian powers of assassination and secret mass surveillance. And what followed were decades of coups, assassinations, kidnappings, torture, secret surveillance, wars of aggression, regime change operations, foreign aid, and alliances with brutal dictatorial regimes. So today, Jacob Hornberger says the American people are hopelessly dependent on government largesse. The notions of self-reliance and independence that characterized 19th century Americans is gone. Modern Americans look at the federal government as their daddy, or even worse, their god. In their minds, it takes care of them with retirement pay, medical services, education, food, housing, and other essentials of life, and keeps them safe from the communists, the Muslims, the terrorists, Russia, China, China <laughs> rather, and other official enemies. At the same time, Americans remain the most frightened people in the world. They're convinced that all those official enemies, as well as illegal immigrants and drug dealers, are coming to get them. They see the federal government as their savior, who will protect them from all the scary people who are supposedly coming to get them. And ironically, the more powerful the federal government becomes, the more fearful the American people become. I think he's right there, by the way. And he says the worst part of this is that Americans, most Americans, have no idea of the two completely opposite visions that have governed our nation. They honestly believe that it's been the same system the entire time. They remain convinced that Roosevelt saved free enterprise through a welfare state and a regulated or mandated economy. They're convinced today that they live in a free country. In other words, notwithstanding the fact that they live under a totally different type of political economic system than their ancestors lived, Today's Americans are convinced that they are as free as their 19th century counterparts. They perfectly embody the words of the great German thinker Johann Goethe. None are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free. And the second worst part of all this is that when Americans of today look upon the massive dysfunctional nature of American society, for example, the soaring suicide rates among young people, the drug addiction, the alcoholism, the police abuse, and the irrational acts of mass violence. They blame it on freedom and free enterprise, which causes them to want to move America towards socialism and interventionism. Jacob Hornberger says two conflicting visions. Which one should Americans embrace going forward? He says it sure seems like a no-brainer to me. Kind of an interesting history lesson, huh? And I'm not saying you have to believe it, but I'm just saying that's probably not something people are likely to be taught in school. One quick article I wanted to share with you, a couple of excerpts. This is called Our Phony War. Cheryl Calmer is the author. And this was, I really liked this one just because it's one thing to be passively carried along with the currents, quite another to move with purpose. And so if you know in your gut that there is a need to stand up for what is good and what's true, then you have a duty to join the battle. This is how Cheryl Colmer describes it. She says, Evil may attack us, but sometimes it takes a pause, lulling us into complacency before striking with greater force. For instance, after Germany rolled over Poland in 1939, inflicting half a million casualties in one week, 
Europe went strangely quiet for about a six-month period, dubbed the Phony War. Hitler had been considered by many to be doing nothing more than a vulgar, or he was thought of as nothing more than a vulgar barking dog until Poland was crushed by the German military machine, which was not even supposed to exist according to the terms of the 1918 armistice. But the Blitzkrieg, the lightning strike on Poland, put the world on notice that Germans had an army and they weren't afraid to use it. But then surprising everyone, Germany appeared to lay down quietly to gnaw on Poland while secretly muscling up preparation for adding Norway, Denmark, and France to its portfolio. At the Nuremberg trials after the war, General Alfred Jodl admitted that Germany would have been easily defeated in 1939 had Britain and France acted quickly. Instead, they held their breath while Germany caught up to and surpassed Allied strength. In that strangely silent interim, the British people tentatively inched their way back towards normal, dodged a bullet, they thought, in a profound misunderstanding of the nature of evil. They hoped it was over. And she says it's a fatal error to believe that evil can ever be satisfied. It needs to cram more and more down its maw and has an ever-expanding category, or cavity, rather. As C.S. Lewis mythologizes, mythologizes in The Great Divorce, the only way to deal with evil is to kill it. The gradual process is of no use at all. She has some really great thoughts here, but I really like this last part, where she says, look, when we truly understand evil and don't flinch from its intentions, we will know in our gut that it must be confronted. We are alive at this moment to take up a battle. Whether we like it or not, this is our place in history. The enemy has been using our torpor and confusion up until now to gather its resources. Cheryl Colmer says, let us make the most of the time we have left. Now, I think this is much more of a figurative battle, but it is a battle nonetheless. And being an effective part of that battle means knowing who you are and knowing what you stand for. And that's what shows like this are dedicated to helping provide some of that needed moral clarity. This is The Brian Hyde Show.